very good evening to you all. Is this on? Yes, it is. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, we are this evening very honored to welcome Human Majd, who is going to be uh, uh, speaking about his new book, The Ayatollah Begs to Differ. Uh, I will introduce uh, Mr. Majd briefly, and uh, he will speak to you, to us, for about 30 minutes, and then we'll be taking questions from the audience. Huban Majd was born in Tehran in 1957 and has lived abroad uh, since his infancy, uh, mostly in your childhood, I understand, in a diplomatic family. He attended in schools and was educated in Britain and in the United States for college, and then stayed in the United States after the Islamic Revolution of 1979. Maus has had a long career in the entertainment business before devoting himself to writing and journalism full-time. And he has written for GQ, Newsweek, the New York Times, and the Financial Times, among others. He lives in New York and travels back and forth quite freely to uh, Iran. So far. Aha. <laughs> so without further ado, please. Thank you. Whatever you prefer. Thanks very much. And um, full disclosure, I have not been back. I left Iran um, just a few days before the election and have not been back yet. So I haven't tested whether I travel as freely as I used to back and forth, given that uh, um, so many people are unfortunately in prison still and uh, accused of treason. People who um, have done far less than I have to be critical of uh, the Ahmadinejad government. But that said, um, it's only three months ago. Um, when I wrote this book, The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, um, the title actually ended up being, although I came up with the title two years ago, the title ended up being sort of uh, appropriate to today. Um, a lot of people have asked me that in the States about whether this is about a specific Ayatollah or is it about the Supreme Leader. Um, the answer is no. What I was trying to do um, with this book was try to give an understanding of who the Iranian people are, who the Iranian government is, um, how they came to be the way they are, what motivates them, um, what makes them tick, for want of a better word, because there's so little understanding of Iran and Iranians um, in the West, and particularly in America, perhaps less understanding in America than almost anywhere else. Um, this is a very educated audience, so, so I, I certainly don't want to uh, assume that you don't know, I'm sure you know a lot about Iran, know a lot about the political system, so I don't really want to lecture on how Iran works and so on and so forth, but I'm going to talk briefly about, briefly about what I was trying to do in the book, but also about what's happened in the last three months. Um, one thing that uh, has annoyed me in America is uh, I've, I've done a lot of, unfortunately, had to do a lot of TV shows since the election, and uh, I'm often introduced, as other Iranians are, as an Iran expert. And I usually say there is no such thing. Um, there has never been an Iranian expert in the last few years, and there, there won't be for a long time. And a prime example is that there isn't a single Iranian, um, not one, who could have predicted what happened in, in June of this year with the election. Um, and there wasn't a single Iranian, myself included, who could have predicted what happened in the days subsequent to 
the election and the unrest and the, uh, um, the civil disobedience and so on and so forth. So there really are no Iranian experts. So then you, your question becomes, well, why do you, you know, who are you to write a book? Well, I am an Iranian, and I feel as much Iranian as I do American. I grew up in the West. I was raised in the West. But I have very strong ties to Iran, and I feel like I do understand Iran, and I do understand the motivations of Iranians. I understand the culture, and that's really what I was trying to get across in the book more than anything else. But much of what I wrote about in the book, which was based on <clears throat> personal experience, <clears throat> and for full disclosure, I'm, I'm related to former President Khatami, so uh, I've had a lot of contact at uh, high levels of government, um, his government, but also subsequently in the Ahmadinejad government as well. And I still have contacts, um, and I still maintain my contacts with even the Ahmadinejad government, certainly some people in the Ahmadinejad government. And I do understand, um, I understand them and I understand some of their motivations, at least I think I do. Uh, I'm surprised by them as much as anyone else is sometimes. But um, as everyone knows, Iran is not monolithic. Um, Iran is not a society that is monolithic. It's not a government that's monolithic. It's not a dictatorship. Most Americans up until this summer assumed that Iran was basically a dictatorship. I think, uh, again, the events of these past few months have shown uh, most Americans that it's not quite what they thought it was. There's actually a civil society. People object, people criticize, people protest. Yes, they are um, brutalized sometimes when they do so, but the fact that it is still ongoing, um, the debates are still ongoing, the fact that the debates are within the regime, um, some of the things I point out in the, in the book that I've tried to explain in the book um, shows that this society is still a very vibrant society. It's not a dictatorship. Um, that's not to say that some people in Iran don't want it to be a dictatorship. Um, I would argue that some people in the administration today in Iran want it to be a dictatorship. But Iran is, is, is it's a multi-ethnic society, as many of you know, um, with many, many different opinions on, on what Iran should be. Right now what we're experiencing, and I do talk a little bit about this in the book, we're experiencing an Iran where there's basically two main factions um, of Iran in the Iranian leadership. The, two factions are people who believe that Iran should forever be a revolutionary state because that's the only way for it to maintain its revolutionary ideals um, and to maintain, to, to, to remain pure. Um, and there's those who believe either through maturity of people who were revolutionary at, at one time um, who believe that Iran should move into a post-revolutionary phase. And that is what the argument has been in Iran for a very long time, not just, we're just aware of it now in the West, but that argument's been going on for a very long time. We're seeing it much more publicly now. Um, you have people like Ayatollah Rafsanjani, who is, uh, uh, who is one of the architects of the Islamic Republic, who is one of those people who believes Iran should be a post-revolutionary country, should move into a post-revolutionary phase. And then, of course, you have for obvious, we, we know that we have people like um, Ahmadinejad and a few, a handful of clerics who support him, who believe that Iran has to remain revolutionary in order for to preserve its Islamic system. I happen to believe that Iran should be in a post-revolutionary -revolution, uh, phase now and should move on from the uh, early um, uh, vigor of the revolution. Um, that's the big battle that's going on right now in Iran. Uh, it's not a battle that we will be able to influence as much as we want to and as much as America thinks sometimes it can influence and as much as 
some people in Iran, Iran will accuse um, the West of, of interfering in. Uh, the reality is a battle that they are entirely capable of fighting amongst themselves. Um, it may be violent in times, unfortunately, but I think the future of Iran is good. In some ways, what happened um, in June, I believe, is actually probably the best thing that could have happened to the Islamic Republic. Uh, this, this fight, I'll call it a fight or a battle between these two factions in Iran, was, was simmering, was always simmering. Iranians always knew it, it was there. There were plenty of reform-minded Iranians, pragmatic Iranians, even conservative Iranians who believed that Iran should move forward and move out of this revolutionary phase. But there were, they didn't like to discuss these things openly. These things were not things that you talked about publicly. The elections of June made it, made it a public issue, made it something that everybody became aware of in Iran, including conservatives who supported the Ahmadinejad government. Um, when Obama, in, uh, right before the election, President Obama said, he was heavily criticized for saying that as far as the United States was concerned, there was no difference between Musavi and Ahmadinejad. He was criticized by the Iranian diaspora and by Iranians inside Iran. Um, but the truth of the matter is he was right. As far as the United States was concerned, there was no difference. Because the reality is that President Obama is the President of the United States, not the President of Iran. He expected to deal with an Iran that was going to still have virtually, virtually the same foreign policy, regardless of who was going to be President. And that foreign policy meant that Iran was going to be independent, was going to stick to its um, stick to its guns when it came to the nuclear enrichment issue, which is the big issue for, for America. And the difference between Mousavi and Ahmadinejad was going to be an internal issue. It was going to be an issue for Iranians, not for Americans. Um, that said, I think he's had to reassess that a little bit. But I think that the Obama plan right now for engaging in Iran is a good plan, for engaging with Iran is a good plan. What has happened, the reason I say this is good for what, what happened in the election is good for the future of Iran is because after 30 years where there was a tremendous amount of apathy among the Iranian population uh, for their government, their form of government, just kind of um, accepting that this is their lot in life, this is the kind of government they have, there really is nothing that can be done to change it. I think there's now a realization that within the system there are good people who do want to change the system in a positive way. And they are willing to throw that support to those people in the hope that they can be successful. Iranians have, have recognized that there are clerics who are good. Before the, before the elections, if you traveled around Iran, anybody who was against a theocracy or against the Islamic Republic, the idea of an Islamic Republic, lumped all the clerics together. They were all bad. Um, I think they've seen the kind of bravery that we've witnessed even abroad from the, kind of the clerics such as Khatami and Karubi and even Rafsanjani to some degree to challenge the system, to challenge the, the, uh, the more dictatorial aspects of the regime um, is something that's very powerful for the Iranian people. And they're not going to remain silent forever. Um, the government realizes this. When I say the government, Ahmadinejad's government, the supreme leader realizes this. They're, they're certainly acting out of fear to some degree um, in the way that they've oppressed uh, and suppressed all the demonstrations and so on and so forth. 
But that doesn't mean that there's going to be an instantaneous change in Iran, that there's going to be a revolution in Iran. Um, it's one of the things that happened after the elections was that the Western media tended to portray what was happening in Iran as a revolution, as something that was going to turn into a revolution. And I think that was actually unhelpful because um, that allowed the Iranians to say that this is something that the West wants to happen in Iran. And for a revolution to happen, you kind of need the majority of the people, the vast majority of the people, to be on one side. And the truth is, in Iran, Ahmadinejad does still have a lot of supporters. The hardline, uh, hardliners, for we call them the hardliners, the extreme right wing, have a lot of support. Um, their support, I think, is diminishing somewhat based on what's happened in the last few months. It's diminishing a lot. But they do have support. So the revolution wasn't going to happen. Um, certainly not now. It wasn't going to happen in June. It's not going to happen today. But the longer term prognosis for Iran is that the change can happen with it from within Iran. Um, and we don't have to try to institute re regime change from outside. I always thought that was a crazy idea anyway for Iran. Um, Iran, certainly until June of this year, had probably not been as powerful um, and as independent as it was in 300 years. Uh, Iranians have great pride in their history, uh, great pride in their nationhood. This is the only country, only nation state in the region that has been a nation state for millennia, for 2,500 years. It's a multi-ethnic society. Um, a multi-religious society, even though it's a Shia republic now. Um, and Iranians take great pride in their history. We don't really, in the West, particularly in America, don't study Persian history. Uh, Iranians don't study American history. Iranians study Persian history when they're in school. So they know about their culture. They know about their history. They know about Western dominance of the region, Western dominance of Persia, what was Persian, what is now Iran. And they resent that. The vast majority of Iranians resent that. There's a superiority-inferiority complex that goes along with that, the superiority being that we were this great nation, we had this great culture, we still do have this great culture, and yet the West is technologically ahead of us and has advanced in ways that we haven't. In the 30 years of the Islamic Republic, the Islamic Republic has advanced in many ways um, independently. And anybody who goes to Iran, uh, and I'm sure some of you have been there, could witness some of those, some of the advances that the Islamic Republic has made despite sanctions, despite um, being held back as far as they're concerned by the West. Um, I do want to touch briefly on the nuclear issue because that tends to be something that is um, a, big, a big issue for most people in America and I assume here as well. Given that um, the, the United States has now agreed to talk to Iran and Iran has agreed to talk to the United States. The issue of nuclear enrichment, going back to what Obama said, about there being no difference between Mousavi or Ahmadinejad. The issue of nuclear enrichment, there, of course there are going to be some Iranians inside Iran who believe that Iran can do without a nuclear energy program and can give in to the West and, and, and just take all the advantages the West has to offer in exchange for giving up the enrichment. But by and large, Iranians do not want to give it up. They do not want to give up their rights. The Iranian government has been very, very, very good in its propaganda to its own people in, in framing the nuclear issue as an issue of their rights as opposed to just their pride. Iranians actually don't take a lot of pride in things that are Iranian-made, for example. Iranians don't 
want to drive an Iranian car if they can afford not to. Um, so it's not like, well, we have this great pride that, you know, it's, this is Persian uranium, so it's better. Um, it's not to do with that. It's really about their rights. Their rights having been denied them for, for so long by the West, um, they feel that this is something that they're being, uh, regardless of their government, that they're being singled out for being Iranian. So everybody else in the world who signs the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, has the right to enrich uranium. But the Iranians should not have that right because we don't trust them. We could argue in the West, as the, as the United States does and Western nations do, that Iran doesn't deserve the trust because it supports terror groups, for example. Well, as far as the Iranians are concerned, as much as it's not the most popular thing that in Iran, that Iran supports Hamas, for example, and Hezbollah, it's not popular in, in Iran because Iranians don't want to see Iranian money being spent on other, on foreign groups. They like to see the money spent in Iran. Um, in the same way that Americans don't like to see our money being spent abroad, we like to see it spent in America, except on health care. Um, but, um, but as far as most Iranians are concerned, Hamas and Hezbollah are not terrorist groups. Um, they are freedom fighters, whether we like it or not. And um, Iran's support of those groups, whether it's financial or military, is not viewed by the average Iranian as being supporting terrorist groups. Um, Iranians are not particularly, um, don't particularly hate Israel, um, but they're not fond of Israel either. They've had 30 years of propaganda telling them that the Israelis are oppressing fellow Muslims, uh, Palestinians, although since Iranians don't particularly like the Arabs, um, they're not very concerned with that. We tend to be pretty racist when, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to the Arabs, and I think the Arabs can be racist about Iranians too. Um, but there is that Persian-Arab divide there. But nonetheless, the Iranian government has been very successful in persuading its people that supporting Palestinian freedom fighters, is what they call Hamas, or in the case of Lebanon, Lebanese freedom fighters, um, is a cause that is a worthy cause. Um, again, as I said, you know, I was at a rally in Iran um, for Musavi right before the election. And I was standing outside and one old man who was wearing a Revolutionary Guard scarf. He was clearly a veteran of the war. Uh, I said, um, are you supporting Musavi? He said, yes, I, I voted for Ahmadinejad last time, but I'm not going to vote for him again. Um, and he, I said, why? He said, because I don't want to see our money spent. Uh, he said, no, this is his exact words. He said, I'm not going to vote for Hamas, and I'm not going to vote for Hezbollah. I'm going to vote for Iran. Um, and then he said, I don't want to see our money spent on uh, foreign things. You know, our economy is so bad, and so on and so forth. Um, that said, he was still a supporter of the Palestinian cause. He just didn't want to see the money spent. Um, but what I'm trying to get to is that Iran does not want to be penalized. Iranians don't want to be penalized by the West for supporting Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, and they don't want to be penalized for being Iranians who stand up to the United States, for example. Um, and most Iranians want good relations with the United States, but most Iranians, again, don't want to be subservient to the United States. Um, they don't really think that Britain is capable of being uh, a power that can dominate Iran anymore, but they certainly believe that the United States can be. Um, so a lot of the things that motivate Iranians, and certainly the leadership, uh, have to do with how they view themselves, their place in the world, and how they view the way the world looks at them. Um, they definitely feel persecuted.
they definitely feel that there's a misunderstanding of Iran and Iranians in the West. Uh, I was with an NBC uh, television crew who were doing a documentary, uh, uh, a short piece, a one-hour piece for NBC News in Iran. And so I was traveling with some Americans through a country in Iran. And every place we stopped and they would see these Americans, Iranians, would go up to them and say, do you, do you think we're all terrorists in Iran? I mean, they really do think that the Westerners think of Iranians as being all terrorists. Um, this is a problem for Iranians. It's a problem for America, too. Um, but going back to the nuclear issue and what Obama said, there is an understanding among Iranians that we have the right to enrich uranium, and we're going to, regardless of what the West says. We're no longer going to say okay or back down just because America or France or Germany or Great Britain doesn't like the idea of us enriching uranium. Now, the Iranians, are, of course, are very, very uh, aware of the fact that um, once you learn how to enrich uranium, you can also probably build a bomb. But uh, they say that's not our problem. Having the knowledge is, is it's not our problem that once you have the knowledge, you can potentially build a bomb. Um, they claim it's for peaceful purposes. Uh, it's sometimes hard to believe that, I know, but I don't think Iran has an active uh, weapons program right now. I don't think it's to their advantage to have an active weapons program. And I think that in dealing with Iran, and I think President Obama has been very good in dealing in his, so far, in his dealings with Iran, or at least in his rhetoric, um, is respecting Iran and respecting that Iranians want to be independent want to have um, technology, uh, want to be respected, really, uh, as, a, as an equal nation. And um, this is something that hasn't happened with American administrations, at least, for the last 30 years. It's always been, but, and, and Obama has made some missteps with Iran. I mean, one of the famous um, <coughs> things that Obama did with Iran was his Nowruz speech. Nowruz is the Iranian New Year, and President Obama congratulated the Iranian people and the Iranian government uh, on the occasion. And it was very well received, generally speaking. It was well received by Americans. It was well received by Iranians. Um, but he did lecture Iran in, in that speech. And that was not well received. I happened to be in Iran right after that. And um, there were government officials who said to me, yeah, but um, doesn't Obama understand that um, we're not going to behave the way they want us to behave just because they say so? Um, and uh, I think President Obama has backtracked a little bit from that. Um, has understood that in dealing with Iran, um, you have to understand the mentality of Iranians who are very suspicious of the West, at least the leadership is. And this is across the board, whether they're reformists or, or whether they're uh, uh, conservatives who are dominating the government now. Um, very suspicious of America, very suspicious of American intentions, and very suspicious of the power of the presidency to change anything in the same way that they know that their foreign policy doesn't change dramatically when there's a change of administration. They don't really believe that the foreign policy of the United States changes dramatically. And when it comes to American national interests, the foreign policy of the United States doesn't change very dramatically. Um, it's still about uh, influence and power and national interests, and American national interests. Uh, it always will be. Uh, though the style will change, the substance will change to some degree, but generally speaking, Obama's not going to ignore the national, despite what some Republicans say, he's not going to ignore the national interests of the United States. 
In the same way, Iran is not going to, Iranian, any Iranian leader is not going to ignore the national interests of Iran. Having realized that 30 years on after the revolution, they've had some great accomplishments. The Iranian government has made some great accomplishments in terms of power, prestige, and uh, influence in the region. They're not going to give it up. If Mousavi is president tomorrow, he's not going to give it up. Um, going back to why I think, am I running over time? Going back to why I think, uh, and I'll just, I can end on this now, why I think that this is going to be, um, why this change in Iran, this uh, uh, election result in Iran is so good for the future of Iran is because let's say for a moment that Mousavi had won the election. And in the week before the election, when I was there, um, there were street parties, people were dancing, women had their fingernails painted green, hair painted green. I know I'm wearing green too, but um, uh, there was a green, this green wave that, that uh, um, they had, they had uh, expected would, would happen, happened in Iran. And there was a lot of excitement. But the reality was that had Mousavi won, had been able to win, or I think he did win, but had he been allowed to win um, the election, there would have been some disappointment. Um, because Iran, as I said, has these two factions. And they're, e they're not always equally powerful. In some, t in some uh, years, one faction is more powerful than the other. One faction influences the supreme leader more than the other. Um, but they, they exist. They coexist. Uh, and the hardliners tend to be a little bit more vicious than the uh, reformists. In the same way, in my opinion, the Republicans in, in America tend to be a little bit more vicious than the Democrats, and we don't, uh, we don't fight back often enough, the Democrats. Um, and so if Mousavi had won, he would have been blocked in many of the things that he wanted to do, and which would have led to disappointment in the same way that it did with Khatami's um, regime, eight-year regime where the expectations were very, very high for change. And, enabled, and, and being able to deliver was an alt, altogether different thing. Um, and we may have seen, although I think it would have been better for Iran generally, we may have seen a kind of apathy come back into Iranian politics in terms of people's participation and people's hopes for change because of the hardliners' pressure to not allow whether in parliament or because of the Revolutionary Guards or because of the Supreme Leader's dictates, to not allow many of the changes that Mousavi and his wife wanted to institute and his supporters wanted to institute. That has now changed. That factor has now changed. The next time, there's a, if there is a free election, or the next time power changes from one administration to another, there's no longer going to be the ability of the hardliners, for example, to block many of the reforms that uh, the reformists want to institute. And my assumption is, and I do believe, that the reformists will, will win in the next round. Um, and I don't think that would have necessarily been the case if Mousavi had won. We would have seen America trying to negotiate with Mousavi um, and trying to uh, do the same things they're going to do with Ahmadinejad. They would have gotten just as far with Mousavi as they're going to get with Ahmadinejad. We would have seen the Iranian population somewhat disappointed by the pace of change. And um, the Reform Party would have probably been weakened in some ways. I don't think the Reform Party has ever been as strong as they are today in Iran in terms of their support from the people. Um, they have gained the support of many people who previously were conservatives or were on the fence, more conservative than they were reformists. So the long-term um, prognosis for Iran, what, what I call and what, what Khatami has called this, this Islamic democracy, is good. 
Um, and for many people in America who say, well, Islamic democracy is an oxymoron, um, uh, both Khatami and other reformists will say that um, that's because you're viewing democracy purely as a liberal democracy of the West, and you're looking at, at democracy only in the way a Westerner would look at it, not in the way an Easterner might look at it, and that Islamic democracy is a possibility. It is possible for there to be a democracy that is, that is also Islamic at the same time. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, William Morgan Schuster, who was the Treasurer General of Iran in the 1920s, um, hired by the Iranian government, an American, to run the economy, and it was actually um, was, uh, was, was sacked on the, by the Iranians um, under pressure from the British. You know, the British history with Iran is, uh, is a long one, and we can't get into that. Um, he actually called it an Islamic democracy first, and in his book, The Strangling of Persia, he, he discussed it, he called it a Mohammedan democracy, and the quest for a Mohammedan democracy. It's basically the same quest from back then, for almost 100 years ago, that the current reformists, the current clerics, many of the clerics, want to see happen. An Islamic democracy that is a country that is Islamic, that maintains, doesn't necessarily mean that Sharia law, for example, is always applied, um, but it just means that the Islamic veneer is there. It is a country that recognizes the vast majority of Iranian people, the vast majority of Iranian people, once, certainly once you leave the big urban centers, are deeply, deeply religious, um, recognizes that fact, and recognizes that Islam plays a big, big role, um, as I describe in my book, in people's lives, in everyday lives. Islam plays a, plays a big role, um, it, but can still have democratic institutions. And that was actually the concept that Ayatollah Khomeini had. Um, and many people will criticize Ayatollah Khomeini, but that was the original concept, that it would, be, it would be a democratic country with democratic institutions, checks and balances, much, much in the same way that we have in America with checks and balances, a, an independent judiciary, independent parliament, a presidency. The only difference is that you had this velayat fari, this valia fari, a supreme leader, um, which has become a much more powerful office um, and much more executive office than it ever was intended to be. Now, those changes in Iran towards that Islamic democracy will happen. They definitely will happen. Whether they happen in my lifetime or not, I can't say. And I, going back to nobody's an expert on Iran, it's impossible to predict how it will happen. But I do think that what happened in June has accelerated that process. I think a lot of Iranians now feel that that's something that has to happen sooner rather than later. And the fact that the many clerics today in Iran uh, are opposing the status quo and are opposing President Ahmadinejad's government and are opposing what has happened in Iran is a good sign for the, for the uh, future. But I don't want to take up much more time than that. We're going to be taking questions. Um, I want to ask you, please, to state your name and who you are, your affiliation. Um, and if you have a comment, to keep it brief and to ask one, maximum two questions. Um, Mr. Mash has decided to take questions one by one. So I'll take one from a variety of places in the audience and then go back to him. Sure. Yes, with a green scarf. <laughs> There's, there's, a, there's a microphone which, um, which is oh, coming upstairs. your way. Yeah. 
I mean, you tend to depict the political situation here as like two groups of ayatollahs who are reformists versus hardliners, but don't you think we should start to think about the third faction called Revolutionary Guards who are trying to marginalize all of ayatollahs from power? I mean, listening to your speech, you just mentioned, you, you once mentioned Revolutionary Guards, yeah. but don't it, you think that there are really the emerging faction in this election is all about them taking over the power? I, it's, a very, it's a very good question, yes. Um, I didn't mention them too much in the speech because, or in the talk, because um, I mean, we could go on for hours about the Revolutionary Guards. Um, what I can say about the Revolutionary Guards is that they are also not monolithic. And I know this from experience. Um, I have met Revolutionary Guardsmen. Um, we've seen reports that aren't confirmed yet that a number of commanders were fired and a number have resigned um, in, recent, in, in the last two or three months. Um, I know for a fact that there are Revolutionary Guards who supported President Khatami. I know that the we know the statistics that 70% of the Revolutionary Guard voted for President Khatami. That said, I agree with you. Right now, the very top leadership of the Revolutionary Guard, the very, very top, including the, the Revolutionary Guard commander, Jafari, has um, allied himself with Ahmadinejad. And they have a lot of reasons to want to maintain the status quo, many of them economic reasons, apart from just pure power. But there is, there is some dissension within the guards, too. And because the rank and file, and you could argue that you know, if, if underneath the level of commanders, if the Revolutionary Guards aren't monolithic, um, then where is the power? If you have an army that you can't rely on your 120,000 men to be on your side, um, I think you're, you, know, you, you don't really have a monolithic structure. Now that said, the Basij um, do tend to be monolithic. Um, the Basij are mon tend to be monolithic, although even with the Basij, I'll also give an example. Um, I was with a Basij, a former Basij member in Tehran, again, the week, 10 days before the election. And I was shocked that he was telling me this because he knew that I was a, a writer. Um, and he said, in the last election, you know, I personally, personally stuffed 400, 400 ballots for Ahmadinejad. Personally, I, I wrote his name on 400 ballots and put his box in the box. <laughs> and I said, well, that's interesting. But um, he said, but this time, um, I'm going to do the same thing for Musavi. <laughs> it didn't work. Yes. Um, your name, please, as well. There is a... So that everyone can hear. The name is Zietlin, unaffiliated. Um, I may have simply under misunderstood, and I'd like clarification. I thought you said that at the next election, if the reformists win they're likely to be allowed to bring in their reforms, whereas that wouldn't have happened at this election. And I, I'm afraid I didn't understand why. And if I could have a second. Um, within Western democracy, there's a very strong um, demand for religious um, tolerance. Um, to what extent is there tolerance today for non-Muslims? And do you see that changing in the near future or with a different government? Sure, I'll answer both those questions. Um, in, in, in terms, of the, it's my belief, and one of the reasons that uh, President Khatami chose not to run, um, he was viewed as the only person before Mir Hossein Musavi announced his candidacy in March, he was considered the only person who could defeat Ahmadinejad uh, at the polls because he's still a very popular figure in Iran. He's a very polarizing figure. 
Um, one of the reasons he chose not to run was because he felt that even if he won the election, which he felt confident he could win, um, he would not be allowed to institute many, and it would, many of the reforms he wanted to, and it would end in the same kind of disappointment a second time round that it did the first time round. Um, and I think that would have probably happened with Musavi too. Musavi may have been able to get more done than Khatami, and I think Khatami thought that was possible, which is why he backed him. Every poster in, uh, in, in Tehran for the uh, elections during the campaign period had a picture of Musavi with Khatami. So he was definitely um, using Khatami's popularity with the reform-minded uh, Iranians to, to. But I think that in the next election, First of all, I don't think there's going to be fraud in the next election on the scale that there was this time. The Basij might still stuff some ballots, but I don't think that uh, there'll be fraud on the scale that there was this time. And one of the remarkable things about this election is that before the election, one of the reasons there are no ex experts in Iran, going back to what I said, is that nobody imagined this could ever happen. Khatami had told me once that at most three to 500,000 votes can be manipulated in the election. And that's because the election process is actually very strict. Um, this time around, there were a lot of inconsistencies, and it's been studied, and people have written papers about it. Um, but nobody believed that it could be more than that. The Supreme Leader, in his Friday's prayer speech, said up to a million votes could be um, manipulated. So he doubled what Khatami had said. He was less optimistic about uh, Iranian elections. Um, and then the Guardian Council said, well, maybe three million were, <laughs> were, were actually uh, were, were suspicious ballots. Um, but Ahmadinejad won by 12 million, so three million wouldn't have mattered anyway. Um, so that's what their, their argument was. But I think the next time around, there's going to be a lot. They, they're not going to risk, in my opinion, the leadership and is not going to risk um, this kind of event. And I think if the reformers win this time, they will have to be allowed to. Yes, I do believe that that will happen. Um, going back to your second question, I've um, attended Shabbat services in Tehran. There's 13 synagogues in Tehran. Um, I haven't attended any Baha'i ceremonies because there are no Baha'i ceremonies in Tehran. So religious freedom in Iran is uh, absolute unless you're Baha'i. Um, and uh, when I say absolute, there are many churches in Tehran. Um, there are laws in Iran that are discriminatory, that are being fought by the members of parliament who are minorities, a Christian minority member of parliament, the Jewish member of parliament. Um, many of the laws predate the Islamic Republic. Um, and actually some laws that are for religious freedom have been changed in, during the time of the Islamic Republic. Most people don't know, that, know this. Um, blood money, for example, used to be, even under the Shah, if, you know, there's a concept of blood money in Islam, and, and if you killed a Jew, you only had to pay half the blood money that you had to pay if you killed a Muslim. Well, that was changed by the Islamic Republic to make it equal, and that's something the Jewish member of parliament worked on, and the Jewish um, uh, community in Iran worked on, along with the Christian, Catholic, and uh, Armenian, Catholic, and, and Assyrian communities, and Zoroastrians as well. Um, the, the sad thing about Iran is that it's not complete religious freedom, but compared to certainly the Arab countries, it's, there is a lot of religious freedom. Um, there are Sunnis in Iran, there are Christians, Zoroastrians, and of course there are Baha'is, but they are discriminated against actively discriminated against. Unfortunately, the reason is because they're considered heretics. They're not considered a religion. In Shia Islam, um, the, uh, as you know, the, the missing imam, our 13th imam, has not shown up yet. And um, the Baha'is claim that, or at least the Iranian Muslims believe that the Baha'is claim that their prophet claimed to be, coming from Islam, claimed to be the 13th imam. 
and they say that you know he didn't show up. Um, I'm not. I don't know a lot about Baha'i faith. I know a little bit about it, um, and that's that's something that uh, hopefully will change in the future. But it's it's unfortunate that right now that for Baha'is there's no religious freedom. Okay, I'll take a question from the top. Um, yes, over there. Your name, please. Sure. Um, thank you. Noor Stefanovic, unaffiliated. A quick question regarding the um, energy policy, um, because it uh, t touches upon the choice that Iran has made to um, spend a lot of money on the um, on the on the nuclear um, infrastructure. Iran sits on the um, probably top first or second largest or third largest gas reserve in the world. Um, looking at Iran today, they could easily become the second Russia, uh, making a lot of money exporting their gas and at the same time lighting up its own uh, homes. Why is it that the choice of Iran today is to invest money in nuclear when they sit on so much gas? Well, they, they do invest. It's a good question. They do, and it used to be American Apologies, used to say that Iran sits on so much oil, why does it need to have nuclear energy? It can just use its own oil. Um, there's two answers to that. First of all, the oil is limited. Gas, as you point out, may not be limited. They may, be, um, um, they may have a much longer history with, uh, with gas. Um, they, they ha the, the answer to that is they are developing the gas fields, and they do want to develop uh, uh, natural gas use. But they also want nuclear energy because they consider it a clean sort form of energy. They consider it modern. Um, they, they, they point out that France has 60% of its energy needs from nuclear energy. It's, cheap, it's relatively cheap once it's operating. It's relatively cheap, um, clean, and relatively safe. Um, but for example, the taxi fleet in Tehran is being converted to natural gas. Many cars are being converted to natural gas. But sanctions, Western sanctions have caused a lot of problems for Iran when it comes to technology. I was at a speech by uh, Ahmadinejad a couple of years ago in Tehran. He was giving a speech and he said, um, and this is one of the reasons he does have popularity, is because he's a good speech maker. He said that uh, for pollution, Iran is a very polluted country, particularly Tehran is one of the most polluted cities in, in, in the world, um, mainly from automotive uh, pollutants. Uh, he said that we want to convert virtually our entire automotive fleet, uh, government and even private cars, to natural gas. So we have to, we went to a German company and we asked to get these tanks, these natural gas tanks, or the technology to, to build them. And the Germans said, we'd love to sell them to you, but the Americans won't, because there's dual use, you could use them as explosives, and so on and so forth. He said, you know what we said to the Germans? We said, fine, we're going to build our own. And we have built our own. And he announced that they built, Iran had built its own plant to manufacture um, natural gas uh, canisters. So sanctions have an effect on it, uh, have an effect on how they can develop natural gas and, and, and even the oil industry. But Iran's view is that they can't rely on the West or any, any outside source of energy. So when they look at the time when they run out of oil or when natural gas is not an option for energy, um, they want to be able to provide their own energy. So they are insisting that they must have the ability, if not actually to use it to, to, to run their nuclear power, the ability to enrich their own fuel. Yes. Thanks. Um, going back to the question of Jewish community in Iran and religious freedoms, are any members of those Jewish communities able to openly support Israel on public 
Is that part of the religious freedom? No, that's not part of religious freedom. But neither can a Muslim. Well, I, no, but neither like can a Muslim. That's part of my religion to be able to support the state of Israel. That's um, yeah, that's that's a fundamental question. Well, I mean, it's not. It's okay. It's a borderline, but it's pretty important, right? Well, it depends on how you how you define. Um, you know, Iran's view on on Israel is everyone knows Iran's view on Israel. Um, it's not a question of whether you're a Jew or not. Nobody can support, openly support um, the state of Israel. If you're saying to the Iranians that by being a Jew you have to support Israel or by definition as a Jew you automatically support the state of Israel, I actually don't agree with that because I think I have many American Jewish friends who don't automatically support the state of Israel. They support the existence of the state of Israel and I think there are plenty of Iranian Jews, I mean they may not stand, I mean, they're known to support the existence of the state of Israel, which Iran does not. But supporting Israel, you're absolutely right. That freedom does not, that freedom does not exist for any Iranian, whether you're Jewish or not. Um, that said, uh, Iranian Jews have managed to convince the government, at least they did under Khatami, and it's extended into the Ahmadinejad government, that Iranian Jews can travel to Israel, um, which is banned for Muslims. Uh, and Ir Iranians who have emigrated to Israel can travel back to Iran to visit their family, again with the government turning a blind eye um, to it because it's, uh, it's not official, it's an unofficial policy. But the Jewish member of parliament today in Iran, Dr. Morasadeh, is working hard to see if they can change it to make an official policy that for religious reasons, for religious reasons in the same way, and their argument is, and, and, and there are ayatollahs who agree with them, because I've talked to ayatollahs who agree with them, that in the same way that Iranians don't support Saudi Arabia, in fact hate Saudi Arabia mostly, but still travel to Saudi Arabia to go to visit Mecca, we as Jews, we might hate Israel. <laughs> in fact, we hate them. But we still have to go to the Wailing Wall. We still have to go. It's our holy site. And you as a Muslim would understand that. It's a good argument, and it might work in the future, at least for Iranian Jews. It won't work for Iranian Muslims. Um, over there, please. Yes. Mehdi Bazi, I'm an independent oil consultant. Um, how can you have a democracy existing within a theocracy when the supreme leader has oversight? It's a very good question. The Islamic democracy that is envisioned by many of the clerics and certainly by the reformers who are today fighting the system uh, doesn't envision a supreme leader that has the final say on everything, and certainly not one supreme leader. I mean, Ayatollah Rafsanjani actually mentioned two years ago that... Uh, when there were rumors of Khamenei's death, Ayatollah, um, they weren't true, of course, as we know, unless he's a very good double, what we have now, which, come to think of it, I guess it's possible. Um, <laughs> given, his, given his very unusual action in the last three months, um, Ayatollah Rafsanjani actually mentioned that Khomeini had said that the Velayat al need not be one person, um, could be an assembly uh, um, of uh, kind of an assembly of experts, smaller than the 82-person assembly of experts, who kind of, um, so it makes it a more, again, there's even more uh, possibility of there being uh, um, uh, some kind of balance in terms of decisions. But the idea of the Velayat al-Faqi, at least as far as the reformers are concerned, the Khatamis and, and certainly other clerics, and certainly Ayatollah Montezeri and Sanai and people like that, is that it is not to be an executive um, position is to be someone to advise. I mean, you know, this is an interesting question because Iraq is not a velayat al-Faqi. In fact, 
the, the, uh, the, the, the most senior Ayatollah in, in Iraq, Ayatollah Sistani, um, is not, doesn't believe in Velayat al-Faqi. But for all practical purposes, there is a Velayat al-Faqi um, because Maliki, the Prime Minister of Iraq, makes a pilgrimage to Najaf every other week because he goes and gets Sistani's approval, at least when it comes to anything that would, 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 would uh, involve Islam, on anything he wants to do, on the Constitution, on anything. There's an understanding in Iraq, and I think there's an understanding in Iran, that without the clergy, you're not going to be able to get things done, because the clergy have the ability to put out a million to three million people onto the streets. Um, so they do have that power. If you're saying that in the very, very long run there shouldn't be any interference by the clergy, I wouldn't argue with that. But in the near future, in the, in the near term, um, the idea that it's going to be without any kind of participation of the clergy, um, in my opinion, is impractical. I think if you travel around Iran, you'll find that the clergy still do have a lot of support. Um, various clergy do, not necessarily one or the other, um, but the, the idea that a lot of Iranians still look up to the clergy. Um, obviously not the people in Tehran who live in you know, the North Tehran, and there are plenty of secularists, and there's perhaps even millions of them, but we're looking at a population of 70 million people. They tend to still look up to the clergy. I don't think it's impossible for there to be, um, based on the conversations I've had with many of the people who believe that an Islamic democracy can be Islamic and a democracy at the same time. I don't think it's impossible to have clergy have an opinion in, uh, in what, uh, what the affairs of state are. Um, but I, I would agree. If there's one man who has the final say, then yes, on everything, then it's, it, it can't be under any definition of democracy be a democracy. Okay, the hands are multiplying. Um, the, <laughs> the lady in the light blue up there, please. Rosanna Leusner. Um, my question is about um, your comment that Iran is not a dictatorship. In the past 30 years, Iran has consistently ranked second after China in terms of the executions, people stoned to death and hanged under all sorts of fictive crimes that, the, that your so-called independent judiciary fabricates. In the past th three months only, thousands of people, most of them students, have been arrested, uh, beaten to death in the jails, uh, raped by stick, uh, bottles, if not by the Hamas mercenaries who have been hired to suppress people in Iran. If that's not your um, definition of dictatorship, can you then tell us what a dictatorship is? Well, the, re the reason I say it's not a dictatorship, everything you say is true. Um, and those are some of the signs of a dictatorship. But a dictatorship would not, things that are happening today in Iran, would not be happening if it was a dictatorship. Musavi, Khatami, Rafsanjani, um, Karubi, uh, and anybody would have been shot the first day under dictatorship. Um, an Arab diplomat in New York um, said, an Arab ambassador, I won't name what, from what country, said to an Iranian diplomat just recently, um, went up to him and said congratulations to the Iranian diplomat at the UN. And the Iranian diplomat said, said why are you congratulating me? Say, he said, because what's happening in Iran could never happen in my country. Um, because his country is a dictatorship. Now that doesn't excuse all the things that have happened. You're absolutely right. It doesn't excuse that. But if we look at Iran as a dictatorship in the same way that we look at North Korea as a dictatorship, 
there are no websites in North Korea that are, are, are there, there are no, uh, there's no opposition. There is no opposition in certain Arab countries. No opposition at all. If you're opposed to the government, you're in prison or you're dead. So Iran is not quite that. I'm not saying it's a perfect society. I'm not trying to, or say that there's an excuse for what has happened in the last three months, which is horrific. But the fact that we even know those things have happened, the fact that we even know those things, the fact that Karubi is saying those things publicly and is, and is able to do that, um, shows that it's not quite the dictatorship that some people would imagine. Because in a dictatorship, he would have been shot the first day, um, or at least arrested and silenced. Many of the things that have happened in the last three months are dictatorial, no question about it, are, are the signs of a dictatorship. The, the, the show trials, the Stalinist show trials, the kinds of things the Iranian government has done in the last three months, nobody can argue with that. And I agree with you, and I think it's horrific. But I still believe that Iran cannot go to a complete dictatorship because, what's, because these people are still there and they're still able to fight. Now, I could be proven wrong, again, going back to being, not being an expert. If tomorrow morning we wake up and Khatami and Karubi and Musavi and Rafsanjani and Sanoi and more, um, uh, other ayatollahs who are against uh, Ahmadinejad government, if they all are in jail and they're all executed within a week, then I would agree with you we're in a full-on dictatorship. Okay. They have been a part, but I think you. I think um, if you don't think that they're brave right now for what they're doing, um, I think uh, that's also underestimating them too. I think that uh, the people of Iran. Um, it is the people of Iran. You're absolutely right. It's always the people. The legitimacy comes from the people, always. Any, any uh, movement's legitimacy comes from the people and not just from the leaders. But without these leaders, without Karubi, without um, Musavi, we, we tend to disagree on this. But I think that without those people, um, uh, without those leaders that are, are they're at, at the forefront of fighting the system, that uh, it could descend into a, a full-on dictatorship. If they gave up, then they would be part of a dictatorship, yeah. Over there, please. Uh, good evening, my uh, name's Robert Cook. After what's happened to Iraq with um, the, the weapons of mass destruction and everything else, is anything likely to happen to Iran in, in that, Israel in particular, accusing Iran of, of so many horrible things in developing a weapon? Is that not likely to force Iran's hand into developing nuclear weapons for perhaps self-defense? Well, I think that it's a good question because I think if Israel attacks Iran, then I think that decision would have to be made by the Iranian leadership, and I think it would be very unfortunate. I think they would want to develop nuclear weapons. I think that if Israel doesn't attack Iran militarily, um, if Iran doesn't feel threatened, um, which it does right now, unfortunately, uh, if it doesn't feel threatened, then I think it's less likely that Iran would make that move um, to developing nuclear weapons. Again, they're smart enough to realize that once you have an enrichment process on your own soil, you can monitor it, you can make um, in, uh, uh, low enriched uranium, and then it's very easy to go to highly enriched uranium. The designs for a warhead, they already have those designs. Um, but to go to an active program, the risk is too high right now that it would be discovered and they would be proven to be liars. There's no reason for it. Sometimes just being able to do it is enough, enough of a deterrent. So, but obviously, if they felt they were going to be attacked, I think that the chances would be that they would go to that, yeah. But I don't think, and, and, and even the American intelligence community does not think that they have an active program today, 
right now. But it's possible that they could in the future, yeah. Um, at the back there, please. We have another 25 minutes, so there's plenty of time for everyone to ask their questions. Yes. Hi, my name is Mani Tehrani. Um, I have a question in two parts, actually following from this lady's question. Uh, don't you think, or wouldn't you agree that, first of all, the, the fact that the world uh, is now aware of what's happened in Iran is not thanks to the current government or the current system in Iran, but because of technology, which is Western. That's my first point. Second point is, wouldn't you also agree that the current leaders in Iran, the opposition leaders, are only there because there is a rift between the two factions? If this rift wasn't there, which probably is, and I'm just assuming here, is because of uh, financial priorities swinging towards Ahmadinejad's supporters in the last four years, and now there's not enough money to go around, um, wouldn't you say that's the only reason that they're standing up for the people just because? Uh I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't think it's financial, to be honest with you. I mean, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, who is notorious for being the richest man in Iran, if not the world, some people say, um, has not lost any of his wealth in, in the four years that Ahmadinejad has been president. Um, he hasn't suffered financially. Um, and neither have any of the other people who are vying for power. It, there's always a question of power. I think anybody who goes into politics likes having power. So the motivation of power is definitely there. Um, I'm not being that generous when I, uh, to say that they are you know, doing the people's bidding necessarily. And there's certainly some of them who are accidental leaders. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. But. Um, I, I don't think it's, a, it's the motivation is power. I, based on the, on the conversations that I've had and the people I've spent a lot of time with in Iran, um, I think that they really do believe that, um, and I know some people would disagree with this, some of them were revolutionaries, uh, hardcore revolutionaries in the 80s, and in some cases oversaw some very you know, bad things, um, jailing of opponents and all that stuff. Now, if you believe that people can never change, then you should hold them responsible and uh, you know, not accept them. But I actually tend to believe that people can change. And I think some of these people, if not all, but some of them, have changed and have matured um, and uh, uh, certainly have seen either the errors of their ways or have come to realize for pragmatic reasons, for practical reasons, that Iran cannot be the country it is today if it wants to progress. And if the future for their own children, whatever the motivations are, the future of Iran, to be a better future, that they have to be, um, they have to progress and reform the system. Um, there are people who are just so, many Iranians in the diaspora who, are, who just cannot stand this regime and will never excuse it for anything, for many of the things it's done. And I respect that view. I don't disrespect that view. Um, but from a practical standpoint, from the practical standpoint of um, where can we go, uh, I think, you know, these are the leaders we have. Who, who, who else is there? If you think that the Mujahideen, who um, most Iranians outside of Iran, inside of Iran, don't support, um, are going to be the future leaders of Iran, well, they're an opposition group. If you think Reza Pahlavi, who is the, the, the former Shah's son, is going to be the future leader of Iran, again, he doesn't have much support in Iran, very little support um, in Iran. These are the leaders we have um, for those people who want to see reform and want to see change. Uh, we may not agree with them all the time, but I don't think it's the motivation is money in this case. I think 
For some people it might be, yes. But um, the rich in Iran have grown richer under Ahmadinejad, whether they're on the reform side or the, uh, or the conservative side. The lady there in the pink blouse. Thanks. Um, following on if from a slightly different direction um, from the previous speaker, I wonder if perhaps you could explain what you think is behind the main divide in Iranian politics, which I, I believe you, you described as people who want the revolution to carry on pristinely versus those who think there should be some sort of move to move on. That's the first question. And then I, I wonder if you could also comment on an alternative view that I came across recently um, that says that the, the two main factions in Iran, those who are sort of activists um, amongst the population in particular, uh, between the two sides, are divided between those on the Musabi side, for example, who are are predominantly middle-class, Western-looking, looking for personal freedoms and uh, civil society to develop and, and those sorts of issues, versus uh, people who are backing Ahmadinejad uh, from amongst the people who don't have a, a financial interest in this, who tend to be the impoverished who are primarily backing Ahmadinejad because he is supposedly is fighting against corruption. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understood the second part, of the, what the question was in the second part. In, <laughs> comment on that. Oh, comment on it. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, who Ahmadinejad Musavi supporters are. Um, the first part of the question, yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think it, 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 it fundamentally boils down, that's how I describe it, it fundamentally boils down to people who believe the difference between these two factions. And they actually exist within ministries. Um, Hale Esfandiari, who was the Iranian-American who was in jail in Iran uh, two years ago for, for four months um, for being uh, a spy. Um, she describes in her new book, uh, which she sent me, and we've talked about this, about within the intelligence ministry, there was this two factions. The one faction that believed she was innocent because the whole thing was ridiculous, what the other side was saying. And it depended on the day who was going to be interrogating her and who was going to say she was going she was to be freed and not freed. And ultimately, the ones, the, uh, the pragmatic ones, the ones who wanted to move past this revolutionary phase were the ones who won out in, in her particular case. Um, obviously, right now, the, the revolutionaries are the ones who are winning out. Um, I, I think it, it boils down to that. I think that a lot of the people that I describe whether it's Khatami or um, Musavi, although Musavi hasn't traveled very much, um, they have matured by, uh, in, in the last 20 years, in, in politically matured. They've traveled, they've, they've, they've studied, they've been to the West. They've seen that the West isn't necessarily, uh, or some of aspects of Western democracy aren't necessarily a danger to the independence and freedom and power of Iran. Um, but there are those who believe that anything Western uh, is a threat and will allow Iran to once again be subjugated by the great powers. Um, and, you know, it boils down to the, a lot of those people who are the revolutionaries who believe that Iran should always be a revolutionary state. Um, because they're in power right now, they're very much afraid of losing that power. Um, and that's, we see that in Cuba, for example, where, you know, the people in Cuba uh, who are in charge um, there. Uh, there's a fear of losing that power. America has been very helpful to the Cuban regime by allowing them to stay in a revolutionary state 
or these last 50 years. Um, and uh, I think there's actually among some Cuban in the, Cubans in the leadership this fear that if America does ends the blockade, all of a sudden they become they become less relevant. So there's those there there are those people, in um, on both sides. It's hard to describe because there's obviously a lot of people with different differing political views, and they range all the way from people who. You know, one cleric in, in, in Iran, I, I think I mentioned this in my book, said to me, at home, said to me, I said, well, do you think Iran will ever be secular? He said, what do you mean? It's already secular. People aren't religious here. They just pretend to be religious. This is a cleric, this Hojatul Islam. He says, it's basically secular. What, what is it that you can't have in Iran? He says, you drink. He knew that I, I drank. He said, you drink in Tehran. I said, yeah, more than I do in America. Um, <laughs> He said, people have sex, people have boyfriends and girlfriends. What is it, what is it about the society? The only thing that's, that's not secular is the hijab. Now, he's exaggerating. It's not quite like that. Um, he was exaggerating. But he was trying to say that it will go to a secular society. In terms of, I'll try to be very brief in terms of the Musavi and uh, Ahmadinejad supporters. That's how the Ahmadinejad supporters and apologists in the West tend to describe the divide, that the Musavi supporters were these middle class, these uh, you know, secular people, the educated, they're concentrated in big cities, um, particularly Tehran, and Ahmadinejad appealed to this vast group of people outside this, you know, the, the, the disaffected and the poor. While it's true that Ahmadinejad support largely comes from the lower working classes and the poor Iranians, partly because he's bought them off. Um, he doubled the salaries of retired government workers, for example, the government's the biggest employer in Iran just in the last two months of the camp campaigning. Um, now, if you get double the salary, you, you kind of want to vote for the guy, generally speaking. Um, if your salary is double, hoping that it's going to get doubled again after he wins. Um, but the truth of the matter is that Musavi did, in fact, was, in fact, able to, to get a lot of support from the working class as well. Uh, it came late, it, but there was, there was a lot of support. And one of the things that one of the Musavi campaign people said to me um, late in the campaign was, uh, don't make the mistake to think that you know farmers and all the rural people uh, are going to vote for Ahmadinejad. I said, why do you say that? He said, because you know, this government has gone out and built uni universities throughout Iran. There are thousands of universities now, virtually in almost every small town. There's a university. It's a very highly educated population. A lot of university students. He said, every farmer, every uneducated farmer, every working class worker has somebody, a daughter. A, son, a niece, um, a nephew, who's in college. And those kids are all with Musavi, and they will persuade their parents to vote for Musavi. Um, and I think there was some element of truth to that. I don't think it's true that Ahmadinejad had all of the rural communities and all of the working class and all of the poor. Um, and uh, I was in Jabodieh, which is um, south of the railway tracks in Tehran, which is considered was at one time a slum. It is very, very working class, even though there's a lot of rich people there now. Um, but there's, it's still working class. And I was surprised to find people uh, cursing Ahmadinejad in the weeks prior to the election, saying mainly because of the economy, not because of foreign policy, not because he said Israel should be wiped off the mat, not because of any of those reasons that we would like to think, just because of the economy. The gentleman there. Uh, my name is David Harrington, member of the public. You slightly touched Somebody on else. the subject, but I'm going to press you a bit more. Sorry. Can you hear me? I can hear someone. Someone. Okay. Uh, it's the gentleman there. Which gentleman? 
Uh, we can, we can, we can share yeah. it if you like. <laughs> do, do, shall I continue or do you want me to pass it on? Well, if you will allow me to, I will. Uh. Please do. Thank you. Mr. Majad, uh, the one Arab country you hinted at but did not name. Now, earlier in the summer, Prince Turki Al-Faisal gave a lecture at LSE. And I quote his words. He said that in Saudi Arabia, we have got two nightmares at present concerning Iran. The first one, he said that Iran goes nuclear. And the second one, he said, is that Israel and Western countries attack Iran to stop that eventuality. So perhaps you will comment on that. And may I uh, suggest that you seem to be a very dangerous person because <laughs> the rational way you have been discussing the matter over here seems to have undone all the good work that John Lane of BBC and the whole BBC World Service apparatus has uh, been um, uh, exerting their energies and influence world, world, worldwide on uh, uh, spinning the Iran his, uh, history. So. Thank you. God, I hope I'm dangerous, yeah. Um, although I have to take a flight in a couple of days, I hope people don't think I'm dangerous at the airport. Um, in terms of uh, the Saudi Arabians, yes, I think the Saudis are very concerned about Iran. I mean, that's obvious that they're very concerned about Iran going nuclear. I would actually disagree that they would not like to see an attack on Iran. I think um, that the Saudis wouldn't necessarily mind an attack on Iran. Anything that weakens Iran, and an attack on Iran would weaken Iran, a any kind of military action on Iran. I don't think they would like to see necessarily a full-out war because um, what the Saudi government has to be aware of is its own population. It's not a very popular government. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying anything new. Uh, the Saudi government, the Saudi royal family is not deeply popular amongst the population. Um, and a war with Iran might cause a lot of, uh, certainly even if Saudi Arabia did nothing or didn't take the side of fellow Muslims or whatever, um, might cause a lot of disaffection, particularly with the three million Shias that are, that are, that are in Saudi Arabia. But I, I, I would agree that he, they would rather not see that, but I think it, if their choice was that Iran becomes a nuclear power or that Iran is attacked by the U.S. or Israel, I think the Saudis would go with attack. Um, I think that's the view that the Iranians have. They don't trust the Saudis, um, and uh, they probably shouldn't trust the Saudis. Is it okay, Human, if we take three yeah. together this time? Sure. Um, the, were you the gentleman who started speaking before? Yes. Uh, I was, yeah. Shall I continue? Yes, please. Okay. I mean, you slightly. T uh, my name's David Harrington, a member of the public. You slightly touched on this subject before, but are Israel's fears and mistrust of Ira Iran uh, well-founded? And okay. the young man here, in the middle, please. Yes. Yes. Um, my name is Arash, and um, yeah, I'm a student. Uh, basically, um, I just think that somewhat you're, you're uh, confusing matters at the moment. Like you say that Iran is not a dictatorship, 
because of the existence of so-called opposition figures such as Musafi and Khatami. Um, I think, again, this is a rather misleading comment to make, seeing as these men are all devoted servants of the regime. I mean, Khatami was Minister of Islamic Guidance for like years, and he censored many, many forms of media, newspapers, films, etc. And Musavi was Prime Minister during the massacre of tens of thousands of political prisoners in the 80s. So, uh, again, how are these people an indication that Iran is somewhat different? All of these men would tally very much so with Khamenei and the clerics like him. They are not different. They're all the same. So I think that your comments are somewhat misleading, and they imply that Iran is some sort of, uh, I don't know, like there's some sort of pluralism going on over here, like people who have the right to object and think differently to the supreme leader. But the fact is that all these men were screened for elections. And many hundreds, of thousands, hundreds and thousands of people have been banned from running in elections because of uh, th this regime. So any idea of so-called Islamic democracy is an oxymoron. It's just not possible in this regime anyway. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And the lady at the back there. Could you pass the microphone over? Sure. I'm going to be gentle with you. <laughs> it's about oxymoron. Uh, you're talking about the Islamic democracy. And maybe that would be true for 50% of the population. How about the Iranian woman? How can you imply that a Sharia law in the family law and the criminal law is totally different for women? Thank you. Yes. Okay, going back, going to the, the, the first thing, um, your question, the gentleman in the green up, up there. Um, Israel's fear, is it unfounded? Um, Israel's fear of Iran becoming a power, a great power that could challenge it, is not unfounded. Uh, if there is an Israeli fear, which I don't think there is really, that Iran would develop nuclear weapons and then immediately launch them on Tel Aviv. Uh, I think even the Israelis agree that that's, um, I think it was just a couple of days ago, the Israeli government spokesman said that the Iranian leadership is not, um, is not irrational. Uh, so they don't really believe that that's going to happen. But it's a question of balance of power. Uh, does Israel want to see a Muslim nation that is opposed to it and supports Hamas and um, Hezbollah and supports a one-state solution as opposed to a two-state solution be a nuclear-armed power because it just gives them more power if there ever has to be any kind of uh, negotiating. Um, yes, I think they, it is found, it's well-founded that the fear of them becoming a power. But I don't think that there are too many Israelis who believe that Iran, certainly in, in the leadership, that believe that Iran will actually bomb uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, they understand, and they've said this on a number of occasions, they, the Iran is well aware of the second strike ability that Israel has that Iran doesn't have, uh, even if it develops a nuclear weapon. Um, the fact that there's Israeli submarines in the Persian Gulf, the fact that Israelis uh, could, could uh, retaliate with, that, with their entire leadership gone on Iran. So they're not suicidal, and, and I don't think the Israeli government thinks that. Um, the second question, um, you know, the, the, the thing about trying to, um, I can never please um, either side. <laughs> uh, I'm accused by the Islamic Republic of being anti-Islamic Republic, and I'm accused by the Iranian diaspora sometimes of being pro-Islamic Republic. You can't win. Um, I'm just telling you what I think uh, is true today. Uh, if you don't believe that Musavi and Khatami and other clerics can evolve, then you're right, if you just don't buy that. If you say that somebody like a Musavi, who was prime minister at a time when there was brutality and all that, if you believe that they can't change or that it can't, their opinions can't change, if somebody's opinions can't change, um, then yes. 
I happen to believe that they can change. I've seen people change. Um, through my experience, I've seen people, I've seen politicians change their minds. Uh, I think it's not impossible. I think that um, you, you said that Khatami was Minister of Culture um, and uh, at a time when there was great, but he was Minister of Culture when he tried to actually open up. And a lot of Iranian filmmakers, for example, will say, if you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, under Khatami, the Minister of Culture was much easier. Um, again, he was blocked. And this is not, I, you know, full disclosure, yes, I'm a family, I'm family related to him, and therefore I'm biased towards Khatami. Um, but he would, he would argue that he tried very hard and he was blocked by hardliners. Um, the bigger question is whether it can, it, it can exist at all, whether any of these people can, can, um, can ever run a more democratic Iran. And I would argue that they can. I would argue that these people are standing up to Khamenei. You're saying that Khatami was you know, loyal to Khamenei. He's loyal to the system, loyal to the Islamic Republic, and they've always said that, and so has Mousavi, loyal to the Islamic Republic of Iran. But I would argue, as Khamenei himself has argued, um, and as Ahmadinejad has argued, that they are not being loyal to Khamenei right now. They are going against his wishes, um, so, and, 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 and quite bravely so. Every single day, we, we could see any, on any given day, we could see the arrest of any of these figures. Um, it's been threatened, um, and uh, so I, I would disagree with that. In terms of women, you're absolutely right, but I, I would also argue um, that many of the laws, as women activists in Iran who are fighting some of the discriminatory laws, uh, would say that many of the laws that are discriminatory right now in Iran predate the Islamic Republic. They were under the Shah. Under the Shah, if you were a woman, um, well, this happens to be true. Well, allow me to finish. Under the Shah, this is, goes back for over 100 years. Uh, if a woman wanted to travel, she had to have the permission of her husband. That is true. Under the Shah, it's absolutely true. You can check your sources. That's absolutely true. You had to have the permission either of your father or your, or your... That's a law that they're trying to change right now. There are, there are female activists who are trying to change, and they actually have the support of a few of the... Not all of the ayatollahs, but a few of them. So they're hoping to change that law so that women don't have to get permission from their husband to get a passport. Right now, that's a law that is left over from, from then, and, and it's, uh, it's still there. The uh, inheritance law where women inherits half what a, what a man does. That's also from the Shah's era. That's not something the Islamic Republic, this is not in defense of the Islamic, just, I'm, I'm just trying to explain that these are not laws that were made by the Islamic Republic. They're based on Sharia law, that's true, but the Shah also had that law in, in, uh, on, on the books at the time. There are people who want to change that. There are plenty of um, ayatollahs in Iran, uh, mullahs, clerics, as well as lay people, judges, um, who don't believe that Sharia law needs to be applied in every single case. And fortunately in Islam, we can interpret Islam and we can interpret Sharia. Um, having the Ayatollahs, we are a little bit more um, able to interpret Islam than, than Sunnis are. So if you have a very liberal interpretation, then those things can change. Um, I believe that those can change in the longer term future. But you're absolutely right. Right now, today, you're absolutely right. Women do not have all the equal rights that men do. Um, two questions at the back and the young lady in the red. Uh, please keep them brief. Hi there. My name is Kalancha. I work as a strategist in a telecom company. Mm -hmm. um, Mike, um, if from a supply, energy supply mix perspective, I think it makes a perfect sense for Iranian government to invest in nuclear energy. Um, uh, if there were no sanctions on Iran, I think there would be more 
foreign direct investment that comes and exploit the uh, natural gas anyways. But they should invest in all of them anyways. Finland does the same. Russia does the same. UK does the same. Turkey does the same. So it makes sense. Uh, if you go forward two, three years from today, when Iranians are able to enrich you, uh, you know, uranium, do you think it makes strategically sense not to develop nuclear weapon when all the countries surrounding Iran, like you know, India, Pakistan, Russia, Israel, and who knows, probably there is nuclear weapons in Iraq and Turkey uh, because of U.S. Does it make strategically uh, sense not to invest in nuclear weapons? Thank you. Behind you, then. Um, Please hello? keep it brief, because yes. we only have five minutes. Um, yeah. My question was on the, uh, you said that you believe that if there's an election coming up, the reformists would win. I have two quick questions on that. One is, why do you think that there won't be fraud in an upcoming election? And why do you think that the young people who came out and voted this time won't be disenchanted to come out and vote next time? And you, please. Um, I understand you have been in Iran before election. Um, uh, up until uh, a couple of weeks before the election, a lot of analysts uh, had uh, said that Iranians this time are apathetic to vote. But after the election, we saw such massive uh, participation of people. Uh, can you suggest any specific reason for this participation? And I have no affiliation. I'm a student at LSE. Thank you. Um, I'll address the first question. The strategic sense to not um, build nuclear weapons. Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, you, could, you could argue that if people know that you can build nuclear weapons, that may be enough of a deterrent. If you have the knowledge and you have the fuel and you have the, the warhead uh, technology. Um, I think there is a strategic reason for them to not develop nuclear weapons because I think that, uh, yes, it's true that Pakistan and India have nuclear weapons and that's considered a fait accompli and nobody's going to argue about it, but people view Pakistan and India nuclear weapons as pointed at each other. Um, and, and they kind of cancel each other out in a way. Um, with Iran, they would view it differently, and I think the um, Iranian government understands that, and I think that they would, uh, the penalties for going to, the nu to, a, to, to a nuclear weapon um, phase would be probably more than they would want to bear. Uh, if they, because to do that, they have to kick out the inspectors, they have to withdraw from the MPT and say, okay, do what North Korea is doing, and say, okay, we're building weapons, now what? Um, and, where, where they are in the world, the region, um, I think, I think the, the cost-benefit analysis for them is, is probably not good, because the Saudis would end up having nuclear weapons, and, and then it would be a bunch of weapons pointing all over the place instead of just those two at each other. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think that right now anyway, but I, I do think that if they ever come under attack, that they will be incentivized to develop nuclear weapons so they don't ever come under attack, yes. Um, the disenchanted voters that Mr. Hoshu pointed out um, quite rightly. I think they are disenchanted. I mean, we're talking about the next presidential, well, the next uh, um, parliamentary elections, I guess, are in a couple of years. Uh, but the next presidential election uh, is four years. Um, you know, a lot of people were disenchanted when George Bush won, but we still came out and, you know, voted again. I think that people will come back um, to the process as long as they think 
the process has been reformed to the point where the elections won't be fraudulent. Um, if they think that the process is exactly the same, I would agree that people might not come out and vote at all, um, or a lot of people won't come out and vote. But I think that's one of the things that's, that's happening right now. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk in Iran um, about changing the, 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 the system, the voting system. Um, there's a lot of uh, discussion about how that's going to be managed. Um, so I, I, I don't think that, uh, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think that that's a possibility that we could see the reformers come back. I mean, they haven't given up. Um, so if they haven't given up, I don't see why we should give up. And I don't think the voters should give up either, and I don't think the voters will give up. Um, and which goes straight to, I think, the question that, that you asked, because a few weeks before the election, um, there was a lot of apathy, absolutely. Um, I was talking to, I was in Iran, doing a story for Newsweek in, in April. And um, at the time, everybody I talked to said, oh, Ahmadinejad's going to win, including the reformists. They said, oh, it looks like he's going to win, unless we can get a huge turnout. We've got to get more than 60%. Uh, if it's less than 60%, Ahmadinejad wins. Um, what happens in Iran is things happen at the last minute. Um, it happened when Khatami was elected in 97. Khatami didn't think he was going to be president until two days before the election. Um, literally, two days before the election was when his own internal polls said, oh, we stand a real chance of winning this thing. Uh, in that election, the Supreme Leader had openly backed his opponent, Nater Nouri. Uh, Iranian campaign period is a very short period. Uh, it's by law mandated to be, uh, in this, this time around it was four weeks. Um, last time around it was still only two weeks. Uh, people don't get excited until they start seeing rallies, until they start seeing speeches, the debates. The, you know, this time around was the first time we had debates on television. But um, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of apathy and people believed that Ahmadinejad was going to win based on that. There was a poll that was done, the only scientific poll uh, that was done was done May 15th, I think, which showed that Ahmadinejad was going to win with a margin of error by almost exactly the margin that he did win, which leads me to believe that the Guardian Council actually took those numbers and said that's mm. what happened. Um, so, um, but people in, in, in America who have tried to defend Ahmad, I mean Americans who've tried to defend the Ahmadinejad government um, have suggested that though that was the only scientific poll done and that was on May 15th and then therefore why would we be surprised if he won by 65%? And that would of course ignore the fact that that was a month before the election and Iranian elections notoriously get exciting and people get in, in, interested in them in the last few weeks. As I said, I was there in April and May, all the way up until the election, and I didn't see any real interest um, until literally the last two or three weeks. Um, so things changed like that. Is it okay to have one more sure. quick one just over there? No, it's the gentleman up to you. there. Very briefly, please. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name's John Hunter, a member of the public too. Um, I, I was wondering about Israel. If Israel gave up the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Jerusalem part of the Arabs, would the Iran then say Israel could exist um, as an independent state? Or would they still say it has to disappear? Disappear from the pages of time. Um, <laughs> I think, well, Iran's official position, I'm not talking about Ahmadinejad's, but Iran's official position, which has been reiterated by the Supreme Leader, is that they will they will do whatever the Palestinians want. And as far as they're concerned, the Palestinians right now, being Hamas, as far as they're concerned, are the, are the, are the representatives of the Palestinian, the democratically elected representatives, representatives of the Palestinian people, are arguing for a one-state solution, uh, which means just Palestine. 
But if Hamas accepts that, I think it's really up to Hamas and up to Fatah and Hamas. I mean, one of the things that people don't understand about Iran is that, um, yes, they support Hamas, but not at the expense of Fatah. The, the Palestinian ambassador to Tehran is from Fatah. Um, Hamas has a representative there. So they support virtually all the Palestinian groups. I think if the Palestinians could agree on what a final uh, two-state solution is, I think Iran would go along with what the Palestinians. I don't think they'll stand out and say, oh, you Palestinians have got it all wrong. We should just go and destroy Israel. Iran doesn't have a particularly you know, strong, Iranians, and I think the government knows this, don't have a very, they don't have strong feelings about Israel. It's a long way away. Um, it really has nothing to do with Iran in many ways. Um, it's, a, it's a Palestinian, it's an Arab, it's actually a Sunni Arab issue. Uh, so um, there isn't an emotional thing about it. The only emotional aspect for some deeply religious Iranians is the issue of Jerusalem. So, um, but really, there, I, don't think, I don't think that in the long run, if the Palestinians make peace with the Israelis, that the Iranians would stand in that way. Thank you all for your questions. Uh, those of you who didn't get to ask them, our speaker will be signing copies of his book outside for uh, another 25 minutes. Sure. Um, but uh, most of all, I'd like you to all join me in thanking um, Human Mast for a Thank very you. interesting talk. Thank you very much.